Welcome to the Probasco podcast. It's March 29th, 2022, and I'm joined by Professor Chris Coyne. Um, he is a professor of economics at George Mason University, and thank you for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me. It's great to be here with you. Thank you, Chris. So I would like to just talk in general about how you got interested in your research on the political economy of war. Sure. Well, a lot of it was just personal, uh, you know, being at the right place at the right time. So I grew up in northern New Jersey, went to school in New York City, and worked uh, after I graduated from undergraduate, worked in the Wall Street area. And I would actually commute into uh, the World Trade Centers every day, take the PATH train from New Jersey into the World Trade Centers. And then I moved from there to northern Virginia to start graduate school in 2001 at George Mason University. And three weeks into graduate school is when the 9-11 attacks happened. And of course, they hit the World Trade Center and then the Pentagon which was about 12 miles from where I lived in Northern Virginia. Uh, and then not long after that, the U.S. government uh, made the decision to first invade Afghanistan and then two years later, Iraq. And uh, that kind of provided a, a very unfolding real-world set of events to analyze for a topic I'd, I'd long been interested in, foreign policy, international relations. And uh, that became my dissertation, and I've been doing it ever since. So it started, you know, in my second year of graduate school because of the events in the world and then just never stopped. Yeah, I think that's always a great source for research and ideas is just observing the world around us and what's happening. And so you mentioned that this became the foundation for your dissertation, but that also is the foundation for your first book, After War. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. And so that's one of my favorite books. Thank you. Yes, I am a huge fan. And... Um, Part of the theme in that is trying to understand the failures of trying to export democracy. Yep. And so can you kind of walk us through why there, there's failures are there and then the framework that you use to kind of unpack those arguments? Yep. And so um, I was, again, a second, a first year graduate student going to second year and I was Tyler Cowan's research assistant. He was one of the professors I worked with at George Mason. And I remember just being in his office, talking with him. You know, we'd, we'd meet in passing whenever he was in the office and he needed assistance with something. And we were, we were talking about the U.S. Um, invasion and occupation of Afghanistan and, the, and then Iraq. And, you know, in our talking, you know, I, I said to him, look, everyone's in the U.S. government is using kind of these very simple, clean, grandiose goals of exporting democracy and, you know, rebuilding these countries and creating prosperity. But no one is talking about any of the political economy behind it. So, for instance, no one's talking about, well, what would you need to know and actually, to actually redesign a society in the image that outsiders wanted it to look like and for that to sustain. What kind of incentives would be required both from uh, on the part of the external interveners but from those being intervened upon, regional actors and so on. And really no one, at least in public, was talking about that. And that basic framework is, is what drove the entire project, was you know, focusing on the, the lack of knowledge of outsiders, of both the, the historical context of, of the societies being intervened upon, but also what is actually required for a well-functioning democracy. Obviously, it's much more than just holding elections um, or, or, or using the word democracy. Uh, and then what incentives are there? And so, you know, if you just look around Washington, D.C., where, where I'm from, there's standard big government failures everywhere. Um, again, anyone that's been to the U.S. Postal Office, to the DMV, used the, the infrastructure associated with the metro in D.C., is well aware of these issues. Absolutely. So what makes you think you can go abroad and engage in this <laughs> grandiose project, which faces those same incentives? And so that's the, the basic framework that, that I utilized. Well, I think that's fascinating. And um, your work and that foundation and that framework uh, was part of my motivation in applying that way of thinking to development topics, which we have co-authored together, yeah. and more on the um, role of foreign aid. So can you kind of give the um, overlap or where you see the connection between foreign policy and foreign interventions, but also then the role of foreign aid NGOs, which was a lot of what you discussed in your second book, of doing bad by doing good. Yeah. Yes. So um, I think they're direct related. And, and again, a lot of people associate foreign policy with, you know, military or, you know, the United Nations. And of course, that's an aspect of foreign policy. But 
foreign policy properly understood is any relations with people outside your society. Those can be governments or people. So once you think about it in those broader terms, it also includes things like economic activity. It includes things like aid provision, as well as military interventions. And so that's the, that's the natural entry point. The, the way the, the framework I was mentioning earlier kind of manifests itself is that when you give aid to someone, whether it's through a government, through an NGO, it presumes certain things. It presumes that the donor of that aid knows how to utilize it to achieve the ends, but also that they are going to be able to do so in a manner that does not generate unintended consequences that create more harm than good. Um, and so that, that's the, the natural inroads. And of course, a lot of these things now are, are tied together. Um, so, you know, and you know this quite well from your own work, um, certainly since 9-11, um, but even before that, um, you know, during the Cold War, foreign aid became highly militarized and it became an outreach of, of foreign policy attached to national security and uh, where the, it typically follows where the military is. So, you know, Iraq and Afghanistan mm. were not leading aid recipients yeah. prior to the 9-11 attacks and then they became among the top five recipients. Um, there's a reason that Egypt and, and other countries are top recipients because of military aid. Absolutely. Um, so these things are all tangled together. And just to kind of build from that point, when we talk about foreign aid, it's supposed to ex- exclude military aid. Like yeah. the, the, ta- the way that we actually talk about government-to-government assistance or from the World Bank or multilateral institutions, it's not supposed to include military support. But we see, like you said, after 9-11, that those now are very closely following each other with aid specific for military support and then these non-military support, so economic um, and other types of, of foreign aid. That's right. And so I think it's natural to see the criticisms of both um, foreign intervention through um, military and then also government aid. But um, it seems like at least then a lot of people are still hopeful that NGOs can then fill in the missing gap or provide what the government isn't able to do. And so I think that you provide an, an interesting perspective on the role of NGOs. Yeah, so NGOs are non-governmental organizations. In principle, operate outside the realm of governments. They they hold a place where they're between pure market actors and government. That's the idea behind it. Of course, in reality, many of these things, as you know, are tangled with government, receive government funding. But in any case, and in principle, they they can do good. They can can provide assistance to people (coughs) in need. They can help alleviate suffering, but they also can do significant harm on a variety of of margins. They can foster corruption. They can create dependency effects and so on. And so the way I think about it is focusing not whether in the aggregate or in the abstract they can do good or bad, but focusing on the context and focusing specifically on, number one, what the goal of the aid is. And so what aid can do is increase certain predetermined outputs. You know, if people need water or they need shelter, in principle, NGOs can deliver that, but also then focusing on the, the feedback loops. And so what happens when aid is being spent, but it's not achieving the desired output? Are there incentives in place to adjust behavior? And where there's not, that can create problems. Um, and as I mentioned at the outset, where government becomes entangled with NGOs, because in many cases, NGOs have just become an extension of government policy. So in the humanitarian space, there's this, the phrase is the NGO scramble where Hmm. governments make budgets available and then NGOs just scramble to beat out the other NGOs to get the money. And one of the ways you do that is to placate those that control the the budget, which are are those in government. Hmm. And so um, you want to become kind of, you want to please them. You don't want to do anything that's going to upset them and you want to do what they want you to do with it, which kind of loses the non-governmental part or at least weakens it. Yeah, I think that's um, an important point to emphasize because, again, I think it's, not necessarily easy, but we can get those on board with seeing the criticisms of military intervention and, and the perverse incentives and the unattended consequences, but still trying to understand you still have a desire to try to help people. And I think individuals still think, well, if it's outside government or outside a profit for profit firm. So an NGO is in this wonderful space of not being government and then also not being for for profit. So it must therefore um, be able to achieve the goals more effectively. So I find that um, very fascinating the way that, you know, the arguments that you've outlined and then also I think frustrating in the sense of there's not a clear solution to a lot of the problems that many of us have desires to want to fix. Yeah, yeah. but I think one of the things that comes out of it, it's not a clear cut, like concrete solution because there is no single solution. I think that's one of the takeaways. 
But there is a lot of low-hanging fruit to, to help people that are suffering that doesn't require transfers of aid or, or military mm-hmm. assistance. So, you know, economists know that wealth is created through entrepreneurship and the movement of goods and services. And so if people were truly concerned with alleviating suffering, you one of the things you could do is just look for opportunities to remove barriers to trade, mm. barriers to the, the movement of people. These are very easy ways to do it. It's hard to do because of politics and special interest groups. but And, and those things are, are nice from my perspective because they don't require intervening in other societies. They don't require – they come overcome that mm. knowledge problem issue because you don't need to intervene and tell people how to live or know how they should live. You're simply creating space for them to figure out how they want to live. And they have the opportunity to participate, but they don't have to because there's no one forcing them to do so. Yeah, that's an excellent point. Um, One of the other uh, papers that you've written that I find interesting, and it's uh, popped in my head when you were discussing that, it's kind of criticizing economists in our profession, um, is whenever you... um, talk about or criticize the kind of the classical role or the classical view of national defense in economics. And even if you look at principles textbooks and the way that that's kind of discussed. So where are we in our own profession as economists in understanding and then properly educating those in terms of the role of government and national defense and then the way that it actually plays out? Yeah. So this is something that I think ordinary citizens fall prey to, but economists do as well, which is there's certain areas of life where we've kind of been, I don't, I don't want indoctrinated is the right w- word, but it's been normalized that government does certain things and they need to do them and they're, they're associated with desirable outcomes and national security and defense is one of them. And so economists and political scientists characterize national defense as a public good and that has a technical definition in economics, but really the, the, the kind of plain English outcome of that is that people left to their own devices can't supply effective security in desirable quantities and qualities, and therefore government needs to step in and do it. The, the problem with that, to my way of thinking, is it leaves kind of this middle ground, this black box, this thing we're calling the security state, um, unanalyzed. It's, there's no economics applied to that middle ground. Mm-hmm. We're just assuming that We need government to do it, government does it. So then one of the things I've been interested in doing is unpacking that black box, that middle ground by applying the tools of economics to the national security state. And once you start to do that, you realize that much of what falls under the purview of the security state in terms of their actual actions have nothing at all to do with national security. It's simply certain well-connected people feathering their nests and the nests of their friends and cronies under the guise of, of the common good and, and public interest. Um, and, and it's kind of disheartening, but it's also accurate. And so one of the things, if we, if we truly want to be accurate in our social scientific analysis, but also if we want to be good citizens, so if, if you say, well, the role of the citizen is to check government, then, then it seems like we want to have a critical understanding of these things, for better or for worse. So that as citizens, we can make informed decisions, and as social scientists, we can engage in a complete analysis of what the state can and can't do in different contexts. Yeah, that's fascinating. Um, A big piece of your work recently has looked at the effects um, of our military and foreign interventions abroad of how that comes home. And so your book with um, Tierney um, Comes Home, I think, does a, a wonderful job and in kind of opening our eyes to thinking about, we assume that the military interventions abroad have no effect on us here. And I think that there's maybe that's part of the, why we see the disconnect or the lack of monitoring of U.S. citizens on what the military is actually doing abroad. There's an assumption to remain, or there's an incentive to remain rationally ignorant. And, um, you know, with limited knowledge and limited time to try to understand what's really happening. But in, in this work, you start kind of highlighting, actually, we are very much affected by this at home, and we do need to kind of open our eyes to um, those kind of outcomes. And so um, if you kind of want to walk us through that in terms of, um, you know, how we've got the militarization of the police, more of a police state. Yeah. So so the origins of that, so, so after war and doing bad by doing good kind of focused on applying economics to foreign policy abroad. And then the... More recent stuff, as you were mentioning, is focusing on the domestic effects because, again, you can't separate domestic life from 
foreign policy, even though, again, that's naturally how we think about it. Foreign policy happens over there, mm -hmm. and then anything, any good stuff is just protecting liberty and the public interest. That's kind of what we're taught as little kids from, from our first <laughs> days in school. Yeah. Um, and so what started this was these uh, revelations by Edward Snowden oh. uh, about, about the surveillance state. And, and I, I, you know, I, I, when those came out, I knew there was something called the NSA, the National Security Agency, but I knew very little about it. Mm -hmm. So I, I really just started looking around Wikipedia. So I started reading the history, <laughs> and the NSA was founded in 1952. But I'm like, there's no way this thing just fell from on high. No government program of that magnitude just, like, starts one day randomly. Mm -hmm. It's usually a cumulative. So I kept reading, and, of course, like any government bureau – it's taken on numerous names, reorganizations, and so on, what the NSA is today. And, and after then doing more detailed research, I traced it back to the Spanish-American War um, hmm. in the late 1800s into the early 1900s. And there was a, a guy by the name of Ralph Van Diemen who, who went to the Philippines and set up uh, like the first surveillance state associated with, with America, but abroad, to combat the insurgents in the Philippines. And this was things like, you know, they didn't have things like we have now technology-wise, but it was like collecting information on people's personal lives, their finances, um, intercepting communications between people, and using information as part, an active part of warfare. And then when he came back to America, uh, you know, it's not like he just goes, goes mm -hmm. you know, disappears. <laughs> he integrates into the government and tries to set up a similar apparatus here. World War I uh, creates mm -hmm. the opportunity to do that. And that's really the origins of the of the national security state. And then my co-author, Abby Hall, and I um, apply it to the security state, militarization of police, torture, and, and several other topics. And the, the basic idea is that when you engage in a proactive militaristic foreign policy, that requires certain things. It requires a certain mindset about how you treat other people. It requires the development of a certain set of skills and techniques, what economists call human capital. And those things become integrated into government, into life. And then when you have wars where the entire world is a battlefield. So the war on drugs and the war on terror. They're both open-ended wars. There's no, it's a faceless enemy. Mm -hmm. And anyone's a suspect, even people domestically. And those type of wars serve as a entry point for governments to basically expand the scale and scope of their power over every part of the globe, including domestic life. Mm -hmm. And that's what we observe. Uh, and those things just don't go away. They, they kind of become integrated into life and, and they become normalized where people don't think about it and people become indifferent to it. So if you look at polls, you know, a lot of Americans, unfortunately, to my way of thinking, but they'll say, well, I have nothing to hide, so mm. it's okay mm. um, that, that the government's doing this. But that, of course, assumes that only benevolent people are going to be mm -hmm. controlling those levers of power in the future. So how have you seen it and what are some of the examples that you guys walk through in the book um, of where, you know, specifically it's manifested? Yeah, so the surveillance state's one of them. And, and the government, um, and again, you know, anyone that's read history, and I, I, I admit I didn't know a lot of this, and it's not deep history, but just going back to the 70s, if you go back and look at the church committee uh, named after Senator Frank Church, mm -hmm. Um, and in the 70s, late 60s, 70s, a bunch of revelations came out, and, and including in those was that the FBI, um, the CIA, the NSA, they were all violating their charters. And so they were, they were, the CIA was planning to assassinate foreign leaders and spying on people domestically. This was the civil rights movement and anti-war protesters, um, as was the FBI and NSA. Um, they were engaging in, in little break-ins to private people's homes. Um, and this all came out. And uh, the church committee uh, did a uh, investigation, and it's available online. It's like six volumes. It's not like you know, fun reading, but you can work your way through it, and you realize the extent of, of what they were doing. And it was, you know, the most extensive surveillance of domestic citizens, in addition to foreigners, certainly in the history of America, and, and um, set up set a, a, a extensive security apparatus. And even then, you can. You can see Senator Church being interviewed on TV, and in one of those interviews he says, look, this thing is so powerful, and this is back in the 70s, that if a, a bad person took over, ordinary Americans would have no place to hide. You could not evade wow. this. Now, what, what Snowden revealed was that all that was just in place, and they tried to put in there's something called the FISA court, which is supposed to check abuses of surveillance power. But, you know, like a lot of these things, there's lots of loopholes in it. That came out of the Church Committee. But... 
Um, what Snowden revealed is that not just that the same things were happening, but because of innovations in technology, now they were even more vast and expansive. And so it's pretty scary when you start actually reading about this stuff, about what the, the government has access to and control of our lives. Um, whether you're law-abiding or not, um, you have to think about whether you're in a free society you want government to have that kind of control over you. Well, where else do we see it? The militarization of police. And so, so the U.S. domestic police, again, starting in the 60s with the formation of the first SWAT team, which was based on military operations in Vietnam. That was the very purpose of it. Again, the promise was that it's just going to be localized and used only for good. This was in response to the, the race riots out in, in California. That was the origins of, of the first SWAT team. Um, and, of course, that's spread throughout the country. Now they're used for no-knock raids associated with the drug war. And uh, as we've seen with things like Ferguson and with the, the protests with, uh, in the wake of, of the George Floyd murder, uh, it's been deployed in a host of, of different situations, which was not the initial intention. Uh, and tied up with that, you have things like civil asset forfeiture. Mm -hmm. Civil asset forfeiture is that if a police person stops you and suspects you of wrongdoing or suspects you of suspicious behavior by their own judgment, they can seize your assets. So let's say I'm driving and I have $5,000 in cash on me. And who knows what it's for? Maybe it's because I'm a criminal, but maybe, as in many cases, it's because I run a small mom-and-pop diner that's a cash-only business I'm going to deposit my weekly money in the bank. They might say, well, that's weird that you have $5,000. Only a criminal would do that, and they can take it. And then the onus is on you, the, the person whose property has been confiscated, to demonstrate your innocence, which flips the entire premise of our mm -hmm. legal system on its head. Of course, our legal system is premised, at least in principle, on you're innocent until proven guilty. And of course, if you're a small mom and pop shop, to stick with that example, you don't have the resources to combat government in court to seize your property. Now, there are nonprofits like the Institute for Justice that fights these things. But it, 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 it's devastating to people's lives. And, and uh, I remember several years ago, the New York Times did a, a whole series of, of profiles on people that had been caught up in these webs. Just ordinary people, law-abiding people that had had their property and lives destroyed by this. And, uh, you know, some people refer to it as policing for profit because, of course, the incentive yeah, is yeah. to take because the there's a profit-sharing arrangement between the Department of Justice and local police forces where they, where they each get a percentage of the cut. So the, and, and there's no accountability right. if they get their assets back. So it's not like you took the assets, now I'm going to sue you mm -hmm. for taking my stuff. Of and course. You, so those <laughs> are just a few examples um, of it. Uh, there's, there's several others as well. So you mentioned George Floyd and um, some of the kind of aftermath from those events, even before George Floyd. And um, I'm, I was kind of curious of your thoughts on how states and even local governments handled COVID and the COVID response and, and with the pandemic of if you would see any connection between, you know, the, the surveillance state or the how the police has become more militarized of either um, – um, kind of the, the lockdown aspect, but then also with the protesting, either with the protesting either because they didn't want to be locked down or the protesting from um, the wake of George Floyd. Yeah, so it's interesting. You know, I, what, what my understanding of, of the response in America to, the, to COVID, there's actually significant variation mm -hmm. acro okay. across the country based on local politics, which I think is a good thing. Mm -hmm. That's typically what, we, given that government's going to do stuff we want, it pushed down locally and variation so that people have exit, right? Whenever, whenever one of the ways around government power and forces to allow people to have exit. But even within places, of course, that it doesn't work perfectly, but it's something. And so, um, you know, in, in different places, we saw different responses. It was nothing, you know, at a, at a national level, like what we observed in China and mm -hmm. Australia and other places, which really were like police state mm -hmm. type responses with direct state surveillance, people being pulled from their homes, being thrown into kind of these COVID camps where they had to stay for an amount of time and they had no um, ability to exit if they wanted. Uh, and so actually, it's not as bad as it could have been. Mm -hmm. That's I'll, a good point. I'll say that. Yeah. <laughs> um, now, the interesting thing with the, the response to the Floyd stuff is that you had people who were simultaneously saying, um, those who were saying you can't get together in big groups mm -hmm. and you can't, um, you know, it's bad and, and needs to be programmed, they allowed for the Floyd protest. Right. Um, and that's an interesting, I, I think if anything, I'm not taking a position right. one way or another, I right. think it demonstrates how politics 
drives things. Oh, yeah. You know, and, and for better or for worse. Right. And so, you know, if you think that's a, a good thing that that happened, then that's fine. But understand it's because the political winds were blowing that way. That way. It happened they, to be. It, yeah. And if yeah. they're not blowing that yeah. way, then it wouldn't have been fine. Uh, and, and vice versa. And so that's kind of the interesting thing, I, I think, coming out of that. I, I think the, the bigger thing is that it shows, again, the, the difficulties of the state doing public policy and healthcare policy, especially during real time mm-hmm. while things are unfolding and when you have politics involved. Because yeah. things get really ugly really quick. Yeah. So you mentioned the political winds, and I think that's a good transition um, to your latest book, Manufacturing Militarism, and kind of understanding um, U.S. propaganda for war. And um, just I think that this is, again, one of those issues that maybe people either don't think about or even whenever it's brought up, their gut reaction is to assume, well, no, there's no way that in our country we would face this. Or maybe that was in World War One or World War Two, but not currently. And so I think that it's an excellent project and something that is very relevant, unfortunately, in some aspects, very relevant. Um, so kind of walk us through um, what you and Abby Hall, your co-author, kind of outline in this book. Yeah. So, uh, you know, as you as you said, a lot of people associate propaganda with dictatorships and mm-hmm. totalitarian regimes and not democracies. And certainly authoritarian regimes um, actively employ propaganda to, to maintain power. Um, and, and what propaganda is, is the purposeful provision of either partial information or altogether false information for some political purpose. Um, But democracies have done this too. All governments do this. It varies how they do it, but all governments do it. And I think that recognizing that and appreciating that is like step number one. Mm -hmm. In some sense, it sounds obvious, but as you said, it's not too many people. And and then our natural gut reaction is to think my government would never do that. You know, especially... You know, if your government has spent, invested a lot of time talking about how they're the beacon of freedom and liberty and democracy, like the American government. Now, as you said, during the world wars, it's not like the the U.S. government hid that they, you know, there's something called the Creel Commission. The the very purpose of the Creel Commission, the Committee for Public Information, was to control information flows about the war. Um, There was like the four-minute speeches, the Minutemen, they were called, mm. and they would go around and give public speeches, these shorts, and they were trained to do so. And, and it was to provide the government's perspective on what was happening in the war and why citizens should stay supportive of it. And they needed that. They needed that to get support, maintain support, because the, the world wars, of course, mobilized such a significant amount of resources, both sending people abroad, mm. but also in terms of domestic life. I mean, people, mm. you know, had, were, were encouraged to, it was basically a return to, to poverty. Mm which is what war does, and we should always remember that. It's not, war is not a, a wealth-enhancing strategy. Absolutely. Of course, during the World Wars, we had victory gardens. What's a victory garden? Well, you grow your own food <laughs> in the name of the national good and supporting yeah. the troops. But that's like saying return to pre-industrial revolution. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and so, you know, modern propaganda still happens, but it's not like that. It's not like, mm-hmm. you know, there's a committee. They've got, you know, the U.S. government's gotten wiser about it. Mm-hmm. But it happens. I mean, again, anyone... Uh, uh, who just goes and looks at the buildup to the Iraq invasion mm. um, knows that mm. there was misinformation, and, and we have ex- we know this for a fact now uh, that the pe- top people in the Bush administration lied publicly about uh, the, the possession of weapons of mass destruction by the Saddam Hussein regime. Colin Powell lied in front of the United Nations in order to get support for war, uh, and then they also lied in the aftermath, and we we know this um, about the the progress being made in the war as well as Afghanistan. Um, and they knew, we know this now, the Afghanistan papers have been released, which are, are all the reports on the operations of the Afghan war. And people knew throughout the war that it wasn't going well, uh, but they were pressured to make up various metrics and talking points that would support the war effort. And there's, there's lots of other things which we can talk about, but I'll just make mention of. You know, anyone that's been to a sporting event, uh, a professional sporting event, or even semi-professional, they typically start with some grand military showing. And uh, many of those, at least we know with the NFL, um, they were in partnership with the Pentagon, um, certainly after 9-11, and the Pentagon would pay money to the league in order to, to have these mm. grandiose showings in the name of, you know, creating support for the military and, and patriotism. And you might say, well, that's great, we should have patriotism, but <laughs> but but the... The purpose, the, the point, I think the broader point is these are all efforts to desensitize people to both the, the, the integration of militarism into our life, but also 
it's, it's a it, it creates it's supposed to create an unquestioning attitude that if somehow you question mm-hmm. the war effort, mm-hmm. it is you know you're unpatriotic mm-hmm. or you're not you don't support the troops. But that's not the way a free society works. And that and if you go back to the founding of America, James Madison, you know Adams, all of these people were very worried about the, the war making ability of government as the big threat to a free society mm-hmm. because they realized how it can how the tentacles of war can spread throughout society and subsume all of the things that make us a free self-governing society. And so to my way of thinking, being a good citizen is having a questioning attitude. Mm-hmm. And that's okay. And that, and that shouldn't be looked down upon or, or, or squeezed out in any way. And, and efforts, too, I think are quite dangerous to a, a free society. I would obviously, I think, completely agree with you. And so that leads me to another thought um, and just kind of reviewing your work is to, are we, are we currently experiencing a culture of militarism? Do you think that there's, I mean, I think that you're right, there's an overlap between being patriotic and supporting the troops or, or being in favor of the military, but it doesn't have to be that way. And I think, I imagine throughout history, it's kind of ebbed and flowed, but it, I mean, and in, in, I guess in terms of um, the amount of the propaganda, the way that it kind of has manifest um, in current times, and the amount of of expenditures that comes from our government to support these the war efforts abroad, and even the kind of um, bringing it back home and the surveillance state. That's a tremendous amount of resources and uh, monetary and opportunity cost of those. So, would you do you think that in that the we've just kind of shifted our public opinion or? Our public life is more of a culture and support of this these types of efforts. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's hard. You know, again, a lot of people associate when I when I use the term militarism. What I mean by that is where military activities and the military apparatus, so the entire state apparatus mm-hmm. that supports that, is kind of placed on a pedestal mm-hmm. a, in life, and and it takes a central role in domestic affairs, and of course, then it's used to to project power both domestically and internationally. And so that, from that standpoint, I think America is a highly militarized society. Mm. It's not militarized like China mm-hmm. or like Stalinist Russia. So I'm not saying there's, right. there's troops marching the street, although there have been periods of that too. And that's what makes it even trickier for, for citizens to realize it's kind of covert. And so let me just mm. give some, some, put some meat on that if, if I can. You know, a trillion dollars a year is what the U.S. government spends on the military. That's not just the base budget, which is 600 to 700 billion. But when you take into account Veterans Affairs, the Department of Energy, where the atomic program is housed, as well as interest on the debt. But you also have to realize that things like the war on terror are estimated to have cost about $8 trillion once you're taking a a full account. So this goes to your point about opportunity cost. So you have the raw opportunity cost that those resources could have been used for other things. But the other thing is you have to realize what happens when those resources are spent on war making. It builds mm-hmm. up an entire infrastructure around that. So if you go look at, you know, the top 100 defense contractors, you'll you'll see things, that, you know, there's the standard defense providers. There's Boeing, there's Lockheed that build all the fighter jets. But then there's like healthcare firms and there's accounting firms and you know, technology firms because all of those things, you know, that apparatus needs support. And so now all aspects of domestic society are integrated into the military sector in one way or another. It's hard to find an aspect of American society that's not integrated either directly or indirectly. And, and then, of course, there's job creation associated with all these programs. Yeah. And so you look, like some, you look at something like the F-35 fighter jet and production of that. It's actually brilliant the way that Lockheed set it up from their perspective. Yeah. <laughs> it's, production is spread in like something like 48 states or something like oh, that. Wow. Oh. So it's literally impossible oh. for, to undo it because you'd have to be a, a, a member of Congress <laughs> who is willing to fire, you know, mm-hmm. m- your con- part of your constituency to, to ever get rid of this program. Yeah. So it's brilliant on their part in terms of like creating a too big to fail government program. But then you look abroad and, uh, you know, I, I, uh, America, the American government has something like 800 bases of military installations around the world. Uh, in any year, special operations intervene in like 75% of the world's countries. The, wow. the U.S. government's the world's biggest international arms dealer. Some of those go to mm-hmm. democracies. Many of them go to some of the worst governments in the world, like the Saudis, in terms of human wow. rights and, and treatment of uh, women and minority groups. Mm-hmm. Just brutal. I mean, we're not talking here like, you know, minor things. Um, and, uh, you know, once you start viewing all this, uh, and then you take into account, you know, again, each person has to decide what, what values are important. But to my way of thinking, kind of the, Amer- the set of values that 
make America unique, both from its founders' presence, or, or what people refer to as liberal values, liberal in the, in the classic sense of the term, but an appreciation of human dignity, human rights, human freedom, um, both of association, economic freedom, and so on. And I think many of these activities actually undermine those things. Well, and again, the, the, mm. the weird part is that many people view them as necessary and actually upholding them, but in many right. ways they, they, they corrode and destroy those very things. Yeah, that's um, terrifying, but I think that it's um, very enlightening in the way that we need to kind of start thinking about these issues, especially if we do care about freedom. So one thought is, well, well, two things, but um, one, it came out of when you were kind of going through that is I think that a lot of people's reaction right now and what's going on with Russia and the Ukraine is, well, why aren't we defending Ukraine? If we are, because part of the propaganda, or at least part of the messaging has been, we are a country of who upholds these values and freedoms, and we're going to make sure they're upheld in the rest of the world. And so I'm not really sure. Um, I think there's a lot of politics, obviously, at play between the what's happening in the Ukraine with Russia. But um, what are your thoughts in terms of like where the U.S. is and then how to explain what the decision making with that? Yeah, well, first of all, it's it's I'll say this and I, I think it's important to say that there's no easy answer. Mm. And that's it's OK to say that yeah. like people that doesn't get you on TV. That's not a good tweet to say because like, people, <laughs> you know, here's a thread on what you do to fix Ukraine and Russia. It's yeah. not the world's not like that. And I think any you know, I, I always take that as a sign that you should you know, be highly skeptical of people that do claim there's, and that was the claim, by the way, with Af- Afghanistan and Iraq. This is going to be easy. It's simple. Mm-hmm. And it's never, in a complex world, it's never that case. At the same time, I think during moments like now, it is imperative to be critical of various actions by all parties. So you can simultaneously be skeptical of simple claims by members of the U.S. government or policymakers and be, you know, uh, view the Putin, uh, uh, the act, actions of the Putin administration as abhorrent. Mm-hmm. And you can hold both those positions simultaneously. And again, the, one of the things that concerns me now is it's kind of set up where you're either with us or against yeah. us. Yeah. So if you, if you question anything, you know, with, with foreign policy of the West towards Ukraine in terms of supporting them, then you are somehow supporting Putin. Right. But people need to be careful. I mean, you know, there's nuclear weapons mm-hmm. involved. There's the possibility of, of, of spillover effects in the areas outside of Ukraine. Mm-hmm. And you also have to remember that the U.S. government is already doing a lot for Ukraine. There's okay. the sanctions. There is arms flows going into Ukraine. There's other aid and intelligence. Now, you can debate whether there should be more or less mm-hmm. of that. And that's a, a fair argument to mm-hmm. be had. Um, but that does, you know, those, those are critical questions you need to ask. So here are the kind of the questions I would ask. They're, they're, they're questions. They're not answers. What has changed now from what happened in Afghanistan and Iraq. It's the, it's the same system. Different people have been elected, although many of the same people are on the, mm. in, still in the bureaucracies. But what has changed? What knowledge is necessary in order to achieve the ends you want to achieve? And do you have that knowledge? Or do people in Washington, D.C. have that knowledge? What incentives are necessary? And do they have those incentives? And then what are the costs? Both fiscal costs, but also the broader costs in terms of human life, both uh, any troops that are sent over as well as civilians, because, of course, civilians are being killed now. But if you make the war worse, you can see a, a, a scenario where more civilians will be will be harmed. And if you if you think that's an overstatement, just go look at Libya under Obama, mm-hmm. which is uh, the Obama administration overthrew Gaddafi, which who was a terrible dictator. But then it le- has led to a civil war that is still ongoing and has led to the slaughter of many innocent people. And, and, and Obama, in reflecting on his presidency, called it the big, biggest mistake of his presidency. And so to my way of thinking, that's, that's not a stopping argument by itself, but it's a lesson in needing to be careful and a, a, a constructive, thoughtful thinker, especially when the, the kind of the drums of war are beating. Because when the drums of war are beating, it's, it's usually a time when everyone gets on board yeah. and, and any questioning kind of attitude is pushed by mm-hmm. the wayside and dismissed. And so that's not a concrete answer to Ukraine, but there is none. Yeah, absolutely. So then do you think that the decision to maybe not go in with guns blazing in supporting Ukraine that, oh, um, there's been some lessons learned? Or do you think there's other kind of political incentives to hold out? Or is it that because there's nuclear weapons involved? 
Yeah, so so I, I I've been critical in our discussion of many government activities, and but let me say this: I'm actually surprised, pleasantly surprised, and happy with how the Biden administration. That's my opinion has responded in terms of troops on the ground and the no-fly zone. Mm-hmm. So so there was a lot of pressure both from, from the leaders of Ukraine, but also some sitting members of Congress to impose mm-hmm. a no-fly zone. Mm-hmm. And the minute you impose, impose a no-fly zone, it's equivalent of declaring war. Yeah. Because you're gonna have to shoot down mm-hmm. um, not just Russian aircraft over the space, but typically when you have a no-fly zone, you have to take out the infrastructure in the country that supports the aircraft. Mm-hmm. Which would mm-hmm. mean bombing within Russia's borders, yeah. which would be a declaration <laughs> of war, even if, you know, not probably not officially since the U.S. Congress has given up its responsibility of officially declaring war <laughs> long ago, as they should, according to the Constitution. But in any case, I, I, so I'm, I was pleasantly surprised about okay. that. And the fact that troops haven't been sent in, I, I, in these situations, I think that you, you need to establish the, the incentive is to talk tough. And even over the last couple mm. of days, Biden has made now whether they were you know, mistakes or not, I don't know, but talking about Putin can't stay in power, regime mm-hmm. change, that's quite dangerous um, mm-hmm. because you're backing someone into a corner. And you have to realize that you can, again, think that someone is a tyrant, mm-hmm. like most governments are, by the way, yeah, throughout right. human history and <laughs> in course. the present, but also that you need to deal with that tyrant. So the options are you, you start literally World War III or, or some something close mm-hmm. to that, or you try to negotiate a peace settlement, even though it's not the first best. So any moves that back that person into a corner and push diplomacy off the table makes it that much harder. And that's the tricky part of international relations then is finding these kind of inroads to have these dipl- diplomatic conversations and, and, com- and, and debates about it. Um, but again, you know, it's messy. Then you have all the discussion about NATO and NATO expansion, and certainly that played some mm-hmm. role. But again, a lot of it's what, what role it played, and I don't, I don't know yeah. kind of a magnitude response to that. So then let me ask you this. What is a successful war? And I... Guess in econ we talk about means ends analysis, and when as economists we analyze the means and let others define the end. Right, we're not supposed to be judgmental of whatever the goal yeah. or the end is, and yep. we are value free. Yep. And so within the space that you work, you use the economic framework as you've been discussing throughout the entire podcast to unpack these very difficult but highly important questions regarding war and militarism. And so. When could we ever say it's a successful war? Would you say that they yeah. well, this, this is That's a great question. It brings us all the way back to after war, which is this is something I, I, I wrestled with even back then with nation building. And I, I think, first of all, it highlights that economics and political economy is extremely important, but it doesn't have all the answers. Mm-hmm. So it provides okay. us insight into constraints and limitations, but you need to draw upon other fields and and. Hmm. kind of scholarship to answer these questions. So with war making, there's a lot of issues about ethics. Hmm. Um, you know, what is right and wrong? Economics can help inform those conversations, but it can't answer their ethical issues for the reasons you just said. And that's okay. Mm-hmm. So I view economics as a, a set of, of tools that can help us inform these conversations rather than answer them. And, th- and there's nothing wrong with that. I think neglecting those things, though, neglects a cool par- key part of that toolkit and leads you to perhaps adopt things that have, appear to have more moral weight than they do because you're not taking into account the ability to do them. Mm-hmm. So then how do we determine a success or failure? Well, we need to define our ends, as you said. Mm-hmm. So in after war, what I did is I took the statements of the Bush administration at face value, and they said, we mm-hmm. want to export democracy okay. to Iraq and Afghanistan. And then did, did they do that? And then looking back historically at, at interventions that were aimed at doing those things, not from my judgment, but from, from, the, from the mouse of the people who are our leaders, did they succeed or not? And that's a benchmark to judge it against. Now, what do people say to me all the time? That's not really the goal. Mm-hmm. They just say that mm-hmm. and they really want oil yeah. or profits for the <laughs> firms or, yeah. you know, whatever right. other. Yeah. And I, my response to that is that's all possible and I, I don't deny that at least conceptually any of those things are possible. And I understand that that political leaders oftentimes simplify things down, if not outright like, as this book discusses. <laughs> but we need some benchmark because we don't want to impose our value mm-hmm. judgments upon it. The, the easy way out, and, and, and I think a cheap way of arguing is saying bad people do bad things, good people do good things. But it's not really an argument either, right. right? It's just it's a tautology in some sense. So where political economy comes in analytically in an interesting way is to 
point those things out, that, like how a, a disjoint can exist between what happens and what the stated ends are. But then, of course, there are these other things, and that's what this type of work tries to look at. Like, okay, you're right. There are incentives to lie, so let's look at that. Mm. To my way of thinking, and here's how I fit it together. In After War, I, I, I tried to show that even taking political leaders at their word, that you mm -hmm. actually really want to export democracy and help people, it's really hard to do under those first best conditions. So then when you start deviating from those first best conditions and say, well, they say they want to export democracy, but they really want the oil or profits or whatever, and then you introduce in, into the, the, the equation disinformation and propaganda, that should make us even more skeptical of interventions when people propose them. Because they can't, even under first best conditions, it's really hard to achieve, but it's we can be pretty confident that those first best conditions don't exist in the world because of all these other frictions and politics. And so to my way of thinking, that's a reason to be highly skeptical when people make grandiose claims about what they want to achieve abroad or when they try to silence dissent. Uh, you know, this, again, mm. is another reason for critique point. and dissent because all of the incentives that are baked into the system are biased in the other direction. So would you say that to you... Um, in order to promote change, whether that would be, you know, any type of social change, um, in order to, you know, minimize the ability to have propaganda or um, to be abroad and be misbehaving and, and that the citizens at home don't know about it or are unaware of it. Do you think that it is about um, information flow and, and, and critique and discussion? Like, where do you see us as a society in order to get things that people actually say that they do want, where do you see us being able to move from the position that we're in into achieving those those other goals? Yeah, it's a great question. It's a hard question, but it's it's what where I've kind of shifted my focus now. So what do you do about this? And, and mm -hmm. Abby and I, at the end of Manufacturing Militarism, talk about the importance of citizens being aware, just an awareness okay. of it and caring. Mm -hmm. That's an important thing. If you don't care, you know, government's going to run roughshod over you. But I think the, the to say more about it is to say that one solution is for to shrink the, 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 the reliance on government. But then this comes back to, you know, if, I, I think one of the issues is that many social scientists where we talked, well, like we talked about earlier, take government as a given when mm -hmm. it comes to security. But why? Mm -hmm. When we look around the world at our own actions, we all engage in a whole host of, number one, security operations. From the most mundane mm. things, we lock our doors, we have mm. alarms, we have cameras, we have neighborhood watch, we have people own guns. Um, there, there's a whole host of people hire security firms. Um, and, and on the flip side of that, all of us in our daily lives engage in peaceful behaviors. We take it for granted <laughs> yeah. because we do it, but you know, life, you know, if you think of life, there's human action, and then human action can be peaceful behaviors, those are positive some behaviors, but then conflict behaviors. And conflict is any time where people's preferences conflict. Now, within conflict, there's two ways of dealing with that. There's violence mm -hmm. or there is resolution. And we do this all the time. Again, we take it for granted. Just think about your own life. You know, you're at home with members of your family and, I, you know, you want to watch one movie and someone <laughs> else wants to watch another. You could resort to violence <laughs> yeah. to resolve that. But most of us re engage in compromise. Not everyone. There's right. moments of violence yeah. in life. Now... Why not just take that logic and scale it up? That's mm -hmm. what international relations is. And, and we don't need government to do that. We already do it. Mm -hmm. The problem with, to my way of thinking, the problem with, with granting government, national government, the privilege and, and, the, and putting them on the high pedestal of protecting us is it gives up the game. It gives mm -hmm. up the game because it says that people can do it. But in doing that, it's not just an immediate thing. It also atrophies our ability to engage in self-governance. And, and thinkers like Alexis de Tocqueville, who, of course, wrote the book Democracy in America, and more recently thinkers like Vincent Ostrom, pointed out that self-governance is not something that's innate. It's like, mm -hmm. you know, it's the equivalent of a weightlifter or a marathon runner. If you don't hmm. develop those skills through practice and cultivation, you lose them. So imagine you're just starting out running. Your lungs hurt. It's, <laughs> you, you run like 100 feet and you're doubled over. Yeah. But if you keep doing that and exercising, you build up those muscles. It's the same thing with self-governance. Mm. If you don't engage in the process of negotiating conflicts and figuring out how to resolve them peacefully, those skills atrophy. And once you appreciate that, anything that can push that to the individual level or lower towards the individual level, which doesn't mean atomism because, of course, we interact mm. with people all the time, 
to my way of thinking, is a good. Now, of course, people are going to say, well, what about international relations and, and how does locking your door defeat China? And my response to that is, well, we don't need to defeat China. Mm -hmm. One of the things I think is important is there can be zero-sum situations in the world, but many situations that are, are negative-sum, where, where not just you lose, but you actually get stuff destroyed, a lot mm -hmm. of those are of our own making. Mm -hmm. as, as people, we have the ability to shape whether many situations are negative-sum or positive-sum. Mm -hmm. Just like in our own life, go yeah. back to the TV remote. Yeah. We can make that a positive sum situation. I need to live with you, <laughs> so you get to pick the movie tonight, I get to pick tomorrow. Yeah. Or we pick out of a hat or flip a coin. A, a negative sum is I'm going to fight you over this, right. and the stronger person gets the TV remote. Yeah. That's not a very pleasant way to live. No. But if you think about international relations, oddly, people say, no, it has to be the fighting over the TV remote. Yeah, that's true. And it's a bizarre way to view the yeah, world. It is. And it's not how we view it in our daily interactions. Mm. And then it just collapses into nationalism, mm. which is like, I don't like them because they're Russian or Mexican or Chinese. Uh, but what a terrible way to live. Yeah. What, what a terrible way to treat other human beings. And, and it certainly cuts against fundamental liberal values of, of human dignity and cosmopolitanism, treating other people as people. And none of that is like a kumbaya, the, if we just yeah. hugged it out, the world would be a peaceful <laughs> place. There's always going to be violence. There's always going to be conflict. But again, you know, it is to say that we have a, a much greater scope and ability to influence where that line is between violent responses and peaceful responses to navigating conflict than we give ourselves credit for and that governments give us credit for. And by simply turning that over to government, this is what I'm saying. We've given up the game mm. because we're saying, no, I can't do it. You do it for me. I'm a child. Yeah. You, know, you, 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 you know, mom and dad, you resolve the conflict, but, but you resolve it through violence, yeah. um, which, again, is an odd way to live. And in most families, that's not how it's done. Parents don't resort to violence to, <laughs> to resolve conflict between those that live under them. Uh, and when they do, we, we typically despise it. That's right. Uh, because it's a horrible way to live yeah. with other people. So to my way of thinking, we should take those same principles and apply them in general. And if we did, I think the world would be a much better place. Yeah, I think that's a great um, illustration, a great way of thinking. One thing that you said made me um, think of, it's always been confusing to me how so many people that, again, espouse these values of freedom and personal choice when it comes to certain types of conversations and not just with foreign intervention in terms of military, but when it comes to things like trade and immigration, it becomes an us versus them. And so the, when you said, oh, you know, how are we going to defeat China? That's not the right question. For one thing, it's people. It's people in other countries. And I think that if we can get that in the conversation more to understand that it's not um, Americans versus Russians, or it's these are all people that happen to be unlucky or lucky, depending on who you are, that was born in another country. They're no different than you and I. And I, I have found that to be um, somewhat of a way to kind of to shift the conversation a little bit more toward getting people to think a little bit differently and opening up our eyes to the self-governing way instead of the just, well, turn it over to government. Clearly, they would know better and, and do it better. So I think that's a, you know, a, an excellent way. I agree. Of, yeah. Stories, personal stories, yeah. recognizing that the people are always on the other end. Abstractions and aggregation into nation states, it's collectivism writ large, both both within a nation and across nations, because it yeah. just treats people not mm. as, there's no people. There's, yeah. There, there's, there's no there individuals. homogenous lumps. Yep. And to the extent there are people, there are political leaders wielding control yeah. over others and acting on their behalf. And again, just you know, I always think about it just in terms of ordinary life. You know, mm -hmm. nowhere do we walk around in life and say, well, I'm having a trade war with my grocer. But we do that internationally. <laughs> and the reason we do it internationally is because governments are involved. Yeah. Um, and, and this goes to your point about there's, there's people involved in the same way that we're able to have peaceful interactions with our grocer. We have peaceful interactions with others abroad. Yeah. Um, and and uh, the more we can kind of think about it in those terms, and that's hard because, again, most people associate, you know, Randolph Bourne. The famous writer, he, you know, he's famous for his paper wars, the health of the state. And, and a lot of people don't read it. They just like that phrase. It's like a cliche phrase. <laughs> but he makes a really important distinction in there between country and state. Hmm. And there's a reason the word state's in the title. Okay. Country is how you identify with society. Um, it can be based on language or values or, or whatever. State is the, the state for born is the operation of the political apparatus. It's the, hmm. it's the you know, the machinery of yeah. government. 
And Bourne points out war is the health of the state. It's the, the health mm. of that machinery. And he points out there that you can love your country. You can love the, the values and your community and despise the state. And in certain instances, that's required for the maintenance of the country because the state can undertake actions at odds with the values of the country. And that's always stuck with me because it seems like people tend to conflate the state with the country. Yeah. And that opens up the, uh, the, the doorway for the state to do things which are actually at odds with the values of the country. I think that's such a good point, too. It reminded me of um, my grandfather served in World War II. And two of when you would ask him about, you know, his life and achievements, the two things he would mention is being a part of World War II and his family. And that's how he viewed his life's contribution. And so it, at times it would be difficult to even criticize government at, because it was not maybe indoctrinated is too strong of a word, but a psychological way of dealing with what they went through, but he was genuinely proud to have served. And I found, I find now it's still, it can become a a balancing act of when you're talking to those who've either been in the military or have family members in the military that um, to be critical does not mean that that is not in support of what those individuals have done or are also doing. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, this raises a great point because one thing we haven't touched upon, which I'm glad, so I'm glad you brought it up is oftentimes left out of the conversation is the soldiers themselves. Yeah. So we forget, and again, no, people say, no, we care about the soldiers, but typically in a very superficial, thank you for your service, disingenuous <laughs> way. You know, again, you, you, you know, you're, you're at the, you know, the, the Titans game <laughs> and, uh, you know, the military's at the beginning, you're holding up your $15 beer to, <laughs> to cheers. The yeah. fans, and then you just go on with your life. Yeah. And, and there's human beings involved in this. And when you go to war, you, that is not just human beings on the other side being intervened upon, but human beings carrying it out. And mm-hmm. only recently has it become acceptable, which is a broader trend in discussions of mental illness, to discuss mm-hmm. the brutal effects of war on the people who engage in war. So during the World Wars, like, it wasn't manly to mm-hmm. talk about this. And, and the magnitude of suffering, not just people who died, but just when they came back, yeah. they, literally the, 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 their, ruined their person and their life yeah. mentally, in addition to physically for many of them, was enormous. And now you say, well, we don't send as many troops abroad, and that's true. But now you start reading the stuff about the psychological effects for operating drones because basically mm. you're, you're un- killing other human beings through computers. Yeah. And they, they're real things. And I think that's always important to think about. So another thing to my way of thinking that leads me to say we should uh, war should only be a last resort truly after everything else has been exhausted is if we truly care about troops we want to do everything in our power to avoid putting them in harm's way not just because of the immediate threat to their person which is real but because of these long-term effects yeah. as well um and and so i think that's something that's very rarely discussed and and, and we're, in America, we've become very privileged because the way war has evolved. It does, it's not like the mobilization with World War I and World War II. We can envision a situation yeah. like that, but war has become cheaper from that mm-hmm. standpoint. And so it's, it's much easier to just send other people abroad, even in small numbers, and just say, let them deal with it. Yeah. And then we'll just thank them. You know, we'll let them on the airplane first or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> and, and uh, you know, and it's, I have friends, and again, it's not a, this isn't some kind of scientific study, but you know, in talking to them, they find it quite, they know when people are tr- treating them in a disingenuous mm. way. And, um, mm. you know, and that goes from people who were abroad and engaged in combat to others who have desk jobs. And because they have a uniform on, people are like buying them food. And they're like, what are you talking about? <laughs> you know, I'm sitting in Florida. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm a lawyer in Florida, you know, a, a jag runner. And anyway, it's, it's certainly an interesting aspect, I think, that's important to I, take into account. I agree. And you mentioned drones, which is um, one thing I had written down that I thought we could um, discuss. Because it is very much something that people either don't think about or when they have brought it up, it's usually in the context of, or it's cheaper from the um, cost of lives, and that's a good thing. As if they don't think through them the logic, then that means we could. It's cheaper to engage in combat. Exactly. And then there's no discussion of the aftermath of, of or who's operating the drones or what that you know. There's still people involved in that whole process. Yep. So I, I should mention my co-author Abigail Hall. Her dissertation. George Mason University was on the political economy of drones, and we've written some joint work on it, and she's done work on her own as well, so I'll give her a plug here. Yeah, absolutely. But, you know, it's fascinating. I I think that robotic warfare in general, 
It's clearly here. It's going to evolve mm-hmm. further, but it's scary on a variety of margins. And one of them is the the people on the operators. And, you know, one of the things is it actually takes people think it's like, oh, it's just some guy sitting mm-hmm. there flying a radio control thing. And there is that aspect to it, but it actually is an enormous support staff required for flying a drone. But also on the recipient side, there's the, the point number on the in, people being intervened upon. Number one, there's a point you raised, which is to the extent it lowers the, the, the price, it mm. pushes all those constant pushes you down the demand curve and, the, and you're going to get more attacks, all oh, constant, yeah. more, more use of it abroad. Yeah. But the other is um, the, the U.S. government has lied about the precision of drones. And mm. so if you listen to the, drones really took off in the war on terror using off. They've always been well going back to like World War Two with the early versions of them. Mm. They were used for like surveillance and training. Okay. And during the first Gulf War, they were used for surveillance. It's during the, the war on terror that they, they started using them for offensive okay. bombing people and, and, or launching missiles. But in any case, the, the Obama and his crew really ramped up the use of these things because they wanted fewer boots on mm-hmm. the ground. And they would ta- They use the language of precision. It's like a mm-hmm. scalpel. It, it makes it sound like you can drop a bomb on the only the bad guy's head. Yeah. And that is ridiculous. <laughs> and so, you know, uh, again, if you want one example of this for the, for the people who listen to this and you don't want to delve into it, just go look at the last two days of the U.S. occupation of Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. And I think, it's on the, uh, I think it's on August 29th this happens, where... They were get so so Biden had to get everyone out out of Afghanistan. It was going to be messy no matter what. People ripped on Biden, but I give him credit for getting out finally of Afghanistan. And there was no way it was going to be a smooth process. And that again should lead us to skepticism of these things, which they talk about it like a neat entry and exit point. But one of the things they were worried about was that ISIS and other groups bombing American troops and the airports as they were exiting. So they had drones in the sky. They were targeting people and killing them. Well, one of the people they killed that they thought at first was an ISIS person turned out to be a humanitarian worker who was carrying two jugs of water to deliver to people who were suffering. They dro- The drone strike mm-hmm. killed 10 people. Seven of them were children. They killed the aid worker. No one was held accountable. And they said, yeah, it was just faulty intelligence. My bad. That's what the U.S. government. And it sums up both the war effort itself, so 20 years in Afghanistan, as well as the, yeah. the the imprecision of these things. And you can go find, just go look up in the New York Times, you can find discussions of this, um, this aid worker being killed mm-hmm. at the end of the occupation. And it really gets at the issue. And the other issue is terrorists are always embedded, not always, but usually embedded in communities. And those communities include innocent mm-hmm. people. Mm-hmm. And you read these stories that, that we have of the drones, because these drones can fly overhead for days at a time. And people know they're there. And then all of a sudden, mm. something falls from out of the sky <laughs> randomly. And they kill innocent people. And they talk about the psychological effects on children, on women, members of the community, but also the hatred it has created for the American government, but really American society as a whole, who they associate with the government. Because imagine, you know, imagine drones flying above America and then randomly dropping bombs down. Like, think about the the, the response to 9-11. And that was a good response. Someone attacked um, uh, uh, people, innocent people. On U.S. soil. Yeah. So you can understand the, the strong response. But imagine from the other perspective, because, of course, from the American perspective, we're only doing good. We're combating terrorism. Yeah. But imagine living in a society and then having a foreign government dropping yeah. bombs on you. Um, and you can see how people would have that same kind of very strong, passionate response. Yeah. But that undercuts the process of peace. Because now, instead of viewing people as others you can interact with, you are viewing them as enemies Mm. and now for those people for many of those people anyone associated with america is evil yeah and so you can see this creating issues not just today but five ten fifteen years oh goodness absolutely especially if you're a kid and your family's been Mm -hmm. killed by a drone strike yeah it's going to alter your entire life your entire life perception of the world and so on the choices you're going to make there there after to wrap up um you've maybe answered this but i wanted to ask if you would just share with us either um, what you consider your favorite project or your favorite you know, research and the implications from that, or if there's just something that you think is, you know, if there's only one thing that you could get out in the world or, you know, to, to teach people or to tell people about what is that message? Yeah, well, those are hard questions, but I'll try my <laughs> best. And t- starting in reverse, in terms of the message, you know, I would say that war making is the most destructive act that human beings can undertake. That's always been the mm-hmm. case. 
and it is it is destructive on on the most important margins. It it it, it kills human beings and harms and, and maims other human beings. So it undermines human dignity and human life. It is, you know, as Paul Collier says, development in reverse. Hmm. You know, war is the opposite of development yeah. and, and flourishing. So it has long term effects, and that peace is the way. And any move that can be made towards peace is good. Trade, as we've discussed, mm-hmm. and, and peaceful interaction is bound up with that. And that's the message. Now, there's a lot to that, as we've been discussing, yeah. but that's kind of the postcard okay. version of it. In terms of what I'm most proud of, I, I'd certainly point to after war. And the reason I point to after war is just because I was so young in my career. Mm-hmm. I still can't believe I did it when I look back. <laughs> Seriously, I, I, uh, you know, I, I, that, that, I didn't write it as my dissertation, but I wrote it as the, the chapters of my dissertation turned into that. Economics is not a book discipline, mm-hmm. and it's. It, you know, I had a book contract soon after coming out of graduate school, because I was sitting outside Pete Betke's office as a graduate student, and the the editor from Stanford actually came to see him, <laughs> and he, he disputes this, but I remember it well. He kind of blew her off and said, "Go talk to Chris." He's sitting out there, so I talked to her, told That's her about my great. dissertation, and then she's like, "You should turn that into a book." And I had no idea anything like how to write a book. It just seemed so intimidating. <laughs> Um, but so I'm proud of it that I, I think it's, I think I'm, I'm happy with most of it when I look back. I, and, and so I'm proud of the work itself, but also just that, um, I was able personally to do it. So I, I'm proud of it. Um, yeah. but I'm proud of everything. You know, I, yeah. I'm happy with everything I've done, but that's the one I'd highlight. I completely understand that. Um, as I mentioned earlier, it is one of my favorites. So I, you should be proud. Yeah, thank you. And, um, I've had the fortune to not only co-author with you, but you were on my dissertation That's committee. Right. And so I have yeah, definitely each other yeah, benefited from your well, expertise and knowledge. Well, thank you. And thank you for coming on the Probasco podcast. I'm Claudia Williamson, Probasco chair at UTC and professor of economics. And I was joined today by Professor Chris Coyne at George Mason University. Thank you, Claudia. Thank you.